Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I have this wonderful picture uh, that a friend's daughter drew of me with a white coat, and it says WHO on it, and there's a cape on the back. And it's just really, really sweet because... I never pictured that I would be forward-facing in a situation like this. Really, never. Maria Van Kerkhove is an American infectious disease epidemiologist. She's also the technical lead on the COVID-19 pandemic at the World Health Organization. As you might imagine, that job comes with plenty of challenges, as does her work at home as the mother of two young boys. In a normal year, Van Kerkhove's work and the WHO's mission as the global guardian of health is complicated. And 2020 is certainly no different. As one of the public faces of the organization, Maria is front and center for the global battle against this pandemic, as well as some of the controversy. Congress receiving notification President Trump is officially withdrawing the United States from the World Health Organization. Early in the pandemic, the World Health Organization came under fire from the White House. We are by far the largest contributor to WHO, World Health, and uh, they misled us. I don't know, they must have known more than they knew. Today, I sit down with Maria to reflect on the role she's taken on in these unprecedented times and also the challenges of leading the world through a global pandemic. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Maria, thank you again for your time. Sanjay, thank you so much for doing this. It's it's nice to chat with you and and have an opportunity to talk. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been doing this sort of medicine, journalism sort of blended thing for nearly 20 years. And some of the biggest stories have, have been outbreaks, you know, avian flu, SARS, MERS, Ebola, H1N1, all these things. You've been in the thick of a lot of these, a lot of these outbreaks on the ground. What got you interested in this sort of work? Is this the life you imagined? <laughs> you know, what, what is the saying? Life happens when, you, when you're making plans. I was always interested in science. I was a senior in high school in 1995. And um, the Kikwik outbreak of Ebola was happening then. And I had this incredible AP bio teacher, Mr. Goodfriend in New Hartford, New York. And he just had this infectious nature, forgive the pun, of teaching science. And these outbreaks were happening. And I became fascinated with the idea of viruses living in animals and evolving in them, but not harming them, and then jumping into humans and affecting them in some ways. And just why? And my, my professional career has been all about that with avian influenza, with uh, MERS. I've done a little bit of Ebola, dengue, Zika. And then here we are uh, with COVID-19. What does it mean when an organization like the WHO uh, has the United States withdraw its support? 
what, what, what does it do? What, what does it feel like within the organization? What, is, what tangible impact does it have? Well, I mean, it, it's disappointing to hear, but we continue to work with Americans. I'm an American, as you know. We work with scientists all over the world, including scientists from the U.S., um, from NIH, from CDC, from academic institutions. And that partnership continues because science doesn't deal with those types of politics, you know, and we work incredibly hard to continue to work together and to be professional because we are all trying to address the same goal. So for me, I am hopeful still that um, our relationship will continue, and I look forward to that. This vaccine, how likely is it, do you think, based on all the evidence and the weight of evidence that you're collecting, that there will be a vaccine you know, by the end of this year, by the end of 2020? You know, given that there are 180 plus candidates that are in development, you know, the more vaccine candidates we have, the more opportunities we have to succeed. And I think what you mentioned of this incremental uh, approach, these incremental steps, that's how I view the vaccine. I know everybody wants to know when are we going to get that touchdown, but we need to make those incremental steps. As you know, it's not just about having an effective vaccine, which will elicit immunity and, and, a, and a response and provide protection, but it's about safety. And so if you're looking at a vaccine that will be needed for hundreds of people, that's very different than a vaccine that's needed for billions of people. And I'm hopeful that, that a rollout of this will, will be possible, uh, you know, in, in, in the next year. You know, we talk about, uh, as you mentioned, vaccinating the world, you know, billions and billions of people. Um, when you look at the, the proposed supply chains and distribution chains, um, wealthy countries have already accounted for about half uh, of the overall potential supply of this vaccine. How, how worrisome is that from a WHO perspective? And how do you make the case that people in other parts of the world may should go first? Well, you know, we launched this ACT Accelerator several months ago. And the vaccine arm of that called COVAX is the ability and it's our attempt to work with the world to ensure that when we do have a safe and effective vaccine, that it is available, it is produced, and it is available and accessible to everyone that needs it. What we want is some vaccine for people in every country, not to have just vaccine for everyone in one or two countries. Our goal is to ensure that those that are most vulnerable, most at risk, have access to this vaccine in every country. When, when you're talking about the weight of evidence, which is, I think, a really good term, there is constantly, seems this balance between being hopeful and yet also being very honest. And sometimes what you have to say is not good news. Oftentimes, in, in the midst of this pandemic, it's not been good news. How do you approach that kind of messaging? I mean, I think the way that I speak is to be honest, to try to be as clear as possible, and to explain it in a way that is open, complete, and nuanced so that the, the user can listen and take away what they need to take away. The challenge with public speaking of this, especially at the press conferences, as we are answering questions to journalists, but I'm talking to 
the everyday person that's out there. You know, I think about talking to my family. I think I'm talking to my husband. I know my son is listening who's nine years old. I know that there's grandparents that are listening. I also know that my technical colleagues are also listening. And so my approach is to give a complete answer, to talk about what we know, to talk about what we don't know. And most importantly, I think, is to talk about what we're doing to figure out what we don't know. I think people need to hear that there are literally thousands of people that are trying to address that exact question. And I I get a lot of questions. You must get this a lot too. It's just, when will the science be done? Give me the answer and move on. And that's not how science works. Science evolves and science grows. And that's a positive. The other challenge that I've faced in this, and I think you have too, is politicizing of the science. And that if you have this group and that group, or this side and that side. Science doesn't work that way. You know, you pull together everything that you know about a topic and you have to look at it as a whole. And I think it's important that we express concern when there's concern, but I do think it's also important to express some hope because with this particular pandemic and this virus, this virus is controllable. You know, I've had people call me and say, could you please stop saying that? And what I say to them is we have seen it over and over and over again that it can be. You know, look, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, perhaps we're kind of the same cloth in this regard. We're both optimists by nature. And I think you'd have to be uh, to do this sort of work. People say this has been politicized and that's not new. I think what has struck me is just the degree of politicalization. It's like Francis Collins said the other day, if an alien were visiting this planet and could see that there was a virus that was circumnavigating the globe and and there was a certain percentage of people who were wearing masks in the United States, a certain percentage who were not. And you say, well, why? Who, who's, who's the mask wearing people and who are, who's the non-mask wearing people? And it was divided not by age or by pre-existing condition, but by your political beliefs. That just really strikes me, you know, and it, it worries me uh, a little bit about humanity in general. How do you you deal with that? What what would you recommend to people in terms of how they should deal with it? I mean, I think part of it is about dialogue. And I think part of it is about understanding why decisions are being made. And I think the approach is, is different ways of trying to reach different communities. First of all, listening, right? So really understanding what is it that is the issue, whether it's a vaccine or a mask or whatever. What is it that is holding you back from this? And a lot of it needs to be done sort of one-on-one. That more personal touch and direct interaction with people is how we break down some of these barriers. And I think that takes time. And I'm just curious, you know, I have I have three daughters and, and they've been watching you. And, you know, like I said, um, uh, we talk about these careers being of great interest to people. Are they welcoming to women? They are. It's changed over the years. And most professionals in public health are women now. I mean, there are certain types of disciplines that may be more men than others, but there are a lot of incredible women that are out there who I admire and look up to. And I I have to say, I have been really touched by the number of uh, women and young women in particular who've reached out to me during the pandemic. I have this wonderful picture uh, that a friend's daughter drew of me with a white coat and it says WHO on it and there's a cape on the back. And it's just really, really sweet because I never pictured that I would be forward facing in a situation like this. Really, never. You know, I did my first press conference ever uh, on the 14th of January. 
And I didn't anticipate that this would be part of what I would be doing as part of the response. I'm so grateful to do it. And really, I, I'm I'm so touched by that because more women, women and girls need to know that they can do anything they put their mind to. You have young children, nine years old, and I think not even two years old. Yes, he's 21 months. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, I was having a conversation with my girls who are 15, 13, and 11. And, you know, it's interesting. They were asking me about my childhood. And I'm, I just turned 50. And I was thinking to myself, I actually had a pretty good childhood. Uh, my kids have been born into a life where, since they were born, we've been involved in at least two wars. Um, the economy has gone up and down with significant strife. Uh, they've dealt with the existential threat of climate change to the point where my middle daughter says, uh, I'm not sure I want to make plans for the future anymore. She used to be that kid who would say, I'm going to marry such and such sort of guy. We're going to have this number of kids. Here's what I'm going to do for a living. Here's where we're going to live. She was the planner. And then one day at dinner, she said to me, um, yeah, I don't know if we're going to do that anymore. I'm hearing by 2030, uh, the world is going to be basically spiraling towards its end. You talk to your kids, your younger ones, obviously very young, but how do you, uh, when, when you're communicating with them, they see you on TV, they, they know you're dealing with this pandemic, what sort of message do you give to them? Well, I mean, I speak openly and honestly with them about what is happening. Um, not the youngest one, he's all into trucks and cars and his life is perfect right now. But the nine-year-old, this has been really tough on him because he's seen this and, and he's seen me go away and I've, I've largely been absent at least for the first six months. When I went to China, he was, he was petrified that I wasn't going to come home and he was convinced that I was going to die. But I, I speak with him. I, I am open with him. I'm honest with him. And, you know, as adults, we have a huge responsibility to make some changes. And I don't think we should sugarcoat that. You know, I think that we are creating a world that our children will inherit. And I, I am hopeful in that sense. And, and I don't think I'm overly optimistic, but I've seen ways in which we can turn things around. I mean, even this pandemic, as horrible as this pandemic is, this is an opportunity to build back stronger and better and smarter and more efficient and, you know, put that investment in preparedness. I hope that that happens. When, when you're talking to your nine-year-old, you say he asks you some of the hardest, most penetrating questions. Do you remember one? He's not asking me about sciencey questions and transmission and things like that. He's asking me, why is this happening? And he's asking me, what could have been different? The toughest question he has to say is, why aren't people listening to you? And um, because he's my son and, you know, everyone listens to your mom, right? But I do think that people are listening to WHO. I do think that WHO is having an impact in country. I am so proud to be WHO. I am so proud to work for this organization and what we do and what we stand for and the thousands of people that we work with all over the world that are trying to save lives, that are working to protect the vulnerable. And everything that we do, everything that we do and we exist for is to accomplish that. And I find incredible encouragement and inspiration from that. I always feel reassured after speaking to you. Look, you're busy. You've got important work to do. You've got to go help save the world. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 